Hello, you are listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund. And I'm Simone Malaz with Restore or Retreat. And this is our 99th episode. 99 podcasts on the... <laughs> 99 episodes of Dispatches on the River. So I told my husband that this is our 99th episode, and he's like, like, how many times has it been your 99th episode? <laughs> Billy rightfully does not trust the count, but I think we've done some very thorough counting on this one, and we are at 99. I can't believe it's been quite a journey, Simone. I know. I know. We have Ain't to think of something. I know you're like, yeah, you, you're telling me. Um, well, speaking of journeys, you were out on a journey yourself this morning. Yes, yes. Out I had on a boat. impromptu boat ride out on the Blind River to Maurepas. Um, we took some chefs from the Baton Rouge area out that way. And I had been out that way before, but it's been several years. And it's just so beautiful. I mean, really, the Cypress Swamp. Um, but our friends at uh, Lake Pontchartrain Basin Foundation and... Uh, National Wildlife Federation, they explain that it looks beautiful right there, right? But just beyond those bank lines is a degrading marsh. And so it's really um, easy to see the effects or could be the positive effects of freshwater and, and reintroducing that swamp there, regenerating that swamp. Yeah, I love the Morpa Swamp. I've mm-hmm. gone kayaking out there and then, of course, on tours. There's so many people fishing folks. out there and yeah. people with their families. And when and you just think of that iconic Louisiana swamp habitat and the birds that are there. I know mm-hmm. Audubon. Yeah, I can still talk about the birds, mm-hmm. even though I'm not with Audubon anymore. But yeah, there's yeah, a we lot know, of stuff we know. on there. So. <laughs> well, I am so excited. Um, we have a great episode. Wonderful guests. Um, on today. Um, If you haven't seen um, NOLA.com, the Times-Picayune recently published an amazing series, um, The River's Revenge. Um, I think it's over about six articles by Tristan Barrick on um, various elements of the river that we may not always think of down here in Louisiana, but that affect us. So a lot of the engineering and flood protection that's happening in Minnesota and Iowa, all across the Midwest, Um, And of course, this year, more than any, we've seen kind of what the Mississippi River, um, you know, can do, but also, um, you know, the unprecedented nature of the force of the river. So I'm really excited to dig into this topic. Um, Welcome back to Delta Dispatches, Tristan. Thanks. It's great to be here. Fellow radio personality, right? That's true. (laughs) We're glad to have you on our show. With our friends at WWNO. Um, But of course, um, you know, you've been really busy since the last time uh, we spoke. How long have you been at the Times Picayune again? Um, Well, I started in in March of 2017, so it's, it's a little over two years now. Okay. And you've done a lot of great reporting. Of course, you went out with our friend Eric Johnson and did <laughs> some hunting. Well, uh, hunting is the wrong word, but <laughs> looking for uh, surveys of black rails. How is that experience and that story? Oh, that was that was one of the best experiences I've had, you know, reporting in Louisiana cuz I mean it's it's always it's always great to get out in the field and and do things and that was you know, incredible in that we were you know, just in this very remote place at, late at night looking for this extremely rare bird. And as luck would have it, we actually found one. So that was that was definitely one of the highlights. It sounds so mysterious. Yeah. So, as does uh, sinking alligators and doing gross things in the depths of the ocean. <laughs> Is that what you like, Tristan? You like yeah. mysterious stories? <laughs> sure, sure, yeah, definitely. 
<laughs> so tell us about tell us about that alligator story. Well, I mean, that was one that uh, you know is kind of a story that it, the most interesting part was the process of the science itself. You know, they really didn't have any you know amazing results, but the you know the process that they were doing was sinking alligators in the darkest, deepest part of the Gulf and and uh, attaching cameras to see what happens and. You know, that's purely what they wanted to do is pure curiosity. They just wanted to see what those alligators would attract in this, you know, almost lifeless, dark place in, in the bottom of the Gulf. Oh, it's not lifeless. They had things down there, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, the stuff of nightmares. Yeah, yeah those isopods <laughs> are, are, are terrifying. Well, definitely check it out online if you haven't. There are photos if you if you want um, any reason. But not right to before sleep you go to bed. At night. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, well, yeah, we're so excited to talk about you know the special feature that um, just came out online as well as a special print feature, um, the River's Revenge. So. Um, Tristan, for those of you who may not have read it, can you give us a little bit of an overview of the series? You know, how many stories, what topics did you cover? Um, where did you do your reporting? Yeah, well, it, it basically is about, you know, how how we've controlled the river and, you know, the reasons that we've done that and kind of the unforeseen consequences that, you know, we've had since we've done that over the last, you know, 150 years. And so the approach we took, I, I got a fellowship with the Institute for Journalism and Natural Resources, which was absolutely critical to doing this story. They allowed me to go to the headwaters of the, of the river and then travel uh, south through five states and look at all these different um, facets from you know, dams and levees uh, to you know the the impacts on the wildlife, and so it spread over. Um, I think it's uh, six parts, and it it's supposed to read as as like kind of like one long uh, story, but it's kind of broken into into those chapters, so you can kind of take a bite sized chunk of it at a time. It's almost like a journey down the river, right? <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. So Tristan, when you, did you have the I, they have did you have the name in your head before you wrote the story? Right, like how how does that even come about? The, the river's revenge. That was uh, my editor Mark Larondo's idea. He came up with. I, I actually didn't have any headline idea at all, and and Mark came up with that one. So were you just generally curious about that area, and that's why you applied for the fellowship? Because the, the fellowship is specific to a, a area, right? Or tell us right. a little bit about. You know, why that area? Why start in there? Well, I mean, I think for me, you know, my only knowledge really of, of the Mississippi is here in Louisiana. I'm not from here and I, you know, I've moved here and have been very focused on just this small part of the river where, you know, it's it, it, this part of the river has such a massive influence on Louisiana. It's, it's basically created much of the state. Um, but, you know, what's happening upriver has, you know, profound impacts on the, the very end of the river. And so, you know, I thought it would be fascinating for me to go up there, but, you know, to also kind of take uh, Louisiana readers up there who may have never traveled to Minnesota or maybe, you know, tra traveled to the, the very headwater of the river, which I had you know, I had no concept of. I had, I couldn't even imagine what it looked like. So, you know, I, I, that was a big part of why we wanted to do it. 
So, I mean, in your reporting, obviously you encountered a Mississippi River that's quite different than, you know, maybe Mark Twain wrote about or even, you know, some of the indigenous people and first communities experienced. Um, what, how is the Mississippi River today different? Well, it's changed dramatically. I mean, it's the, up in the, in, in the Minnesota area, you know, kind of south of the, of the headwater. It was fascinating to read you know, old accounts of explorers or even, you know, Mark Twain's time of what the river was like. And, you know, the, the river flowing through uh, Minneapolis was was just, you know, kind of kind of what I imagine, you know, the kind of the wild rivers of the West, you know, it was boulders and canyons and whitewater. And it was truly, you know, a wild river. And you go there now and it's it's um you know, it looks more like a series of, of really placid lakes. Um, and I mean, so there have been, like you mentioned, some major modifications, I mean, that have happened up there. Can you, you know, we're almost about to head into a break, but can you give us a sense of what have been those major modifications? Yeah, it, up there, you know, in, in Minnesota, the first the first of a series of lock and dams, they, they have it right there in, in downtown uh, Minneapolis, and then there's 20. I think there's 29 more or 28 more that go down south, and so that that's the. I mean, that's the most dramatic, you know, visual modification that you can really see because you actually have these, you know, giant concrete structures spanning the river, controlling the river, and then with you know these these giant lock systems that open and close for these massive shifts. Yeah. Um, and, you know, obviously that has implications down here, which we're going to get into in our next section. So we're about to head into a break. But if you don't mind sticking on, sure. um, we'll be right back with Tristan Barrick, a reporter with The Times-Picayune and NOLA.com. We'll be right back. National Wildlife Federation gives voices to the wildlife conservation values that are part of our country's heritage. We are charting a new course for wildlife that our children and grandchildren will thank us for. Visit our website, nwf.org Louisiana to find out more about our work to restore and protect coastal Louisiana for generations to come. National Wildlife Federation, uniting all Americans to ensure wildlife thrive in a rapidly changing world. nwf.org Louisiana. Hi, I'm Don Cheadle. Listen up. I want to talk to you about something important, the Environmental Defense Fund. EDF isn't like some of the other environmental groups. EDF works together with those on both sides of the issue. Despite all the fighting in Washington, EDF has found ways for both parties to support real progress. That has made our air and water cleaner and the products in our homes safer. So not only can our planet prosper, so can our future. Go to edf.org to see how you can help. At Audubon, we believe that where birds thrive, people prosper. Nowhere is that more evident than in Louisiana. Integrating science, education, and policy, Audubon, Louisiana's mission is to conserve and restore natural ecosystems, focusing on birds, other wildlife, and their habitats 
for the benefit of humanity and the Earth's biological diversity. Visit la.audubon.org to learn more and support our mission. la.audubon.org. Restore a Retreat is a coastal nonprofit organization working in the heart of the Barataria and Terrebonne Basins, from the Mississippi River to the Atchafalaya. We work every day to restore Louisiana's coast community and culture with our mission of implementing long-term and large-scale projects for our irreplaceable region. We'll hope you join us in supporting the solution. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and online at www.restoreorretreat.org. Hello, you're listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund. And I'm Simone Malaz with Restore or Retreat. And we're back with Tristan Barrick, environmental reporter with the Times-Picayune and NOLA.com. Welcome back, Tristan. Yeah, thanks a lot. So, uh, you know, obviously we've all been following the news um, of, you know, the Times-Picayune as well as uh, The Advocate. I, you know, heard that you as well as Sarah Sneath and Mark Schlefstein will be moving over to The Advocate and continuing to report on uh, Louisiana's environment. Is that correct? Yep. Yeah, we are all going over, uh, I think, uh, July 2nd or 3rd. So next next week, we'll all be moving over to the other newsroom. Well, we'll certainly, you know, be glad to continue to follow you. Um, I think, you know, for the story itself and the importance of, you know, the coast and what's happening. I mean, you all have done such excellent work at the time speaking that we're glad that you're staying on the story. Um, certainly, I mean, as a hometown boy, I love the Times Picayune, I love NOLA.com. Um, and so my thoughts are with everyone, you know, in the in that newsroom. Um, and I don't know, I wish you the best and all, and obviously everyone else with the Times Picayune the best. Um, but just well, wanted to make sure our, our listeners knew that, you know, you would still be here and um, that they should still continue to follow you to, to, you know, stay on top of the important stories on Louisiana's environment and coast. Definitely. So, Tristan, you said, um, and during our first segment, you know, ta- we were talking about the headwaters, right? And, and you said something mm-hmm. that kind of rang true to me. I can't even imagine what that looks like, right? And and I grew right. up here all of my life. And so I know when I went to Minneapolis, I was like, oh, is that what the river looks like? It's a totally different <laughs> river. Like people recreate mm-hmm. there. So right. why, why yeah. don't you help uh, us, for our listeners, paint that picture of what it looks like? I mean, is it a joke that you can literally jump over it or... <laughs> that you can jump over the yeah. headwater. Um, well, you can you can walk across it pretty easy. It's it's a really so the headwater is a kind of a medium sized lake, and it's it's surrounded by you know what looked to me like evergreen trees, and it's you know it's in a park, so it's it's totally undeveloped. It's it's in a very natural um, state. And then there is a point where, you know, that that lake kind of tips into um, a stream and that stream is the first feet of the Mississippi River. It's only, I would say, you know, 15 feet across and very shallow. So you can just, you know, walk through it, you know, up to your ankles at the very headwater of it. I'm, I'm looking at Jacques, like I can't even fathom getting, getting in the Mississippi River that way. <laughs> yeah, I will have yeah. to, next time I visit family in Minnesota, I'll have to check it out. Although I do, I did hear recently, apparently a woman swam across the Mississippi River what? from Canal Why? to Algiers. Why? But Why? We're not, 
That's why? a different story, a different show. Why? Why? I just. I don't. Why? Why? She survived. I hope you get her on the show. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she, she can be the next. Maybe she can be for the hundredth episode. <laughs> yeah. Surviving. I, I, the our whole show River. doc would be one question: Why? 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 Yeah. <laughs> okay. Getting back to the important yes, stories. Yes. Tristan, you know we we know down here from from our view of the river, right? There are some changes that happen to the river because. Um, you know, they wanted stability for navigation and commerce mm-hmm. and for farming, right? So so let's talk about that. Like, talk about the changes that, you know, they had to make or like those changes that enabled that development and commerce and like, you know, how that works with maybe just keeping it a little more natural, right? How do you find that balance? Right. Well, yeah, I mean, the the river has been really customized for commerce. You know, that's really its purpose. Good word. Uh, what was that? I said that was oh. a good word. <laughs> that's why you're the writer, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it, it's been customized and it's been really kind of channeled into, you know, uh, I think somebody called it a, a liquid interstate. Um, and so the, the kind of the problems they were having early on is just that the the river is is a natural you know ever changing thing. It, it fluctuates with the seasons. Sometimes it's running too low. Sometimes it's running too high. It's it's moving positions. It's it's altering its course. And so you know the the river pilots are, are running aground, and it was just unpredictable. So Tristan, you said in the first article that there's a growing sense that living with the river rather than controlling it may be the best way and perhaps the only course to follow. Tell us what you meant by that, um, what what that really means in practice. Yeah, I mean, we've we've done so much to control it. And you know, it, it's it's really expensive. It's uh, it's really complicated for the people managing the river. But what we're finding is that even with all of this work that's being done to control the river, um, it you know it really can't be controlled. And you know, increasingly there's uh, you know there's heavier rainfall. I think that you know precipitation rates in the Mississippi Basin have increased like twenty percent over the last hundred years. So, you know, the levees that are along the river that are, that are you know, aimed at containing that, they, they're out of date. You know, they really are not built for what the river is becoming. And so increasingly, you know, like, like we have seen over the last year with flooding along the river is that, you know, there, there's, you just really can't con- contain it. It's going to you know, top its banks, it's going to do what it's going to do. It's a powerful river. And, you know, it, it seems like the, the, the only course to take is either to learn to live with that, live with those fluctuations that are going to happen, or, you know, get out of the way, you know, find, find ways to have a relationship with the river where you're not just right up against it and you're, you're sort of, you know, in danger from all of that flooding. They call that in the Netherlands room for the river, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, and you started this reporting kind of maybe before, at least maybe before we knew how extreme 2019 would be mm-hmm. in terms of the river flooding. Yeah. I mean, was that kind of like also like <laughs> just reinforcing everything you were already reporting? Yeah, um, it was actually it was actually kind of a worry with the reporting because, you know, I, I had pretty much written the entire story and we were just kind of sitting on it waiting to 
to publish it. And then all of this, you know, stuff was happening on the river where, you know, some of the communities that I even mentioned in the story were, were having flooding problems. And I was worried, you know, like, am I going to have to update the story? Is anything going to change? Um, Davenport, Iowa, that I feature at the end of the series, uh, was hit pretty hard by floods. And, you know, they're kind of held up in the, in the story as an example of a community that's living with the river. And so I was a little worried, like, well, is this going to really kind of like do in Davenport and it's no longer going to be that example? And they did. They did have difficulty in Davenport, but they held strong. And uh, the mayor there made some statements I read about that said, you know, basically, you know, that it's doing as it's uh, as we planned, as we've uh, designed it. And we're kind of holding the course. Yeah, and I definitely want to dig into that example of Davenport a little bit more, talk about flood protection on the river, and then also, you know, what other communities can learn from the folks there. But we're about to head into a break. So if you don't mind hanging on, Tristan, we'll be right back. Um, You're listening to Delta Dispatches, always available online, deltadispatches.org. 99 episodes. You have a lot of catching up to do. Available on iTunes, Google Play, and also now Spotify. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back to Delta Dispatches. I'm Simone Malas with Restore Retreat. And I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund. We're here every Thursday on 990 WGSO and online through our podcast. Apparently now we're Spotifiers. Are you Spotifiers? Is that what you're? (laughs) Um, But I have the coastal stat of the week. From Tristan's story, dredging dams and other river controls starve places downriver of much needed sediment. The fact is... Between 5 million and 7.7 million tons of sediment is dredged from the Mississippi and the Missouri River, its longest tributary each year. That's as much land as Louisiana used on the $46 million restoration of Pelican Island. That's interesting. One of the dozens of barrier islands that protect coastal marshes and buffer the state from storms. Without new infusions of sediment, these islands are rapidly fading away. That's very interesting. I love when we can figure out somebody else like Tristan figures out facts and stats like that. We, we talked a lot about water in the first couple of segments, but let's talk about the sediment. Sure. What's holding it back? Shouldn't it be here? What are we doing with it? What's the core doing with it? Let's get into it. All right. Yeah. So tell us what is happening upriver that affects our sediment balance here yeah one 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 of the biggest ones is the dams i mean especially for the missouri river which contributes a huge amount of sediment to the mississippi you know i can't remember the stat but it's just loaded with so many dams and those dams kind of just build up the sediment and it just sits there um and then you have the core uh dredging the river um all the time to to clear it for for shipping and um, that's a, a huge amount of sediment as well. Um, so wait, Tristan, that, what do they do? What does the core do with that sediment? Where does well, that come? They just basically pile it up. They have um, spots where they they pile it up. There's a couple islands that are uh, basically just dredged sediment. They're really kind of like sandy beach islands. Um, people like to have parties on them and go fishing on them. <laughs> kind of in, in Wisconsin and and uh, 
That and annoys me. <laughs> I know. There's a great yeah. quote from one of the articles that Tristan says, there's a 1.5 million ton pile of sand in Wisconsin that should be in Louisiana. Right. Yeah, it should. I mean, by rights, it should be flowing through the river and it should be coming out the mouth of the Mississippi and, and rebuilding the landscape in Louisiana. But instead, it's it's held up there. And, you know, it, it does create some, some nice places for people to hang out when they're boating in, in the river. But you know, for the most part, the core doesn't know what to do with all this sediment. I mean, they really don't have uh, a purpose for it. And it's free. You know, if anybody wants to come and haul away sediment for a big construction project, they can. But there's just not enough construction projects that want this massive amount of sediment. So it's always it's always an issue for the Army Corps as they just look for places to dump it. You know, they're kind of running out of spots. Well, and I'm sure Simone and I can think of a few ideas of yeah, what to do I'm with that sediment. Yeah, I'm about to start me a, a sediment yeah. hauling business, right? That's <laughs> yeah. crazy. That, that's just crazy to think that, that I mean, the I'm, connection's yeah. not there. And I know the court does a lot of dredging here in Louisiana, too, for navigation, including in Southwest Pass. I mean, they've started to do some beneficial use projects with mm-hmm. that. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. They do do a lot down here, but the, you know, the sediment up there, I mean, I asked the question, like, why don't you ship it down to Louisiana where they would love to have this? And they just, you know, it's, it's a cost thing. It would just cost too much money uh, for whatever budget they're using uh, for their dredging to transport it down to Louisiana. But- but then who pays a $46 million Pelican Island project, right? Like, right. you know what I'm saying? When you're talking about cost and things mm-hmm. like that, that's, that's, uh, that's, another, that's another show. I know, another show. <laughs> another show. <laughs> well, I do want to talk a little bit about flood protection and levees. Obviously, this year, it's you know top of mind. I mean, there are many communities across the Midwest and upriver from us um, that have been flooded as a result of this unprecedented high river. I mean, here in Louisiana, the mm-hmm. Corps had um, the Bonnie Carey spillway open twice, including breaking the record for the longest opening ever. Um, I mean, of course, it's protected communities in New Orleans and St. Bernard, Plaquemines, Jefferson. But I mean, levees are a big part of your story. Um, tell us a little bit about the effect that levees have had on flooding on the river. Mm-hmm. Well, levees, you know, constrict the river and, and make it narrow. And just as we have um, more of this rainfall and rainwater, it's it's kind of it's it's not allowing that water to spill over as as the river would naturally do, and it just gets pushed, you know, downriver, and eventually it comes to you know a lower section of levee, or it comes to a section where the levee, you know, isn't so well built, and then you have you know flooding beyond those banks. You talk about that. You give one example of a woman who says, um, even now, my husband doesn't like to sandbag because he knows someone else is going to get that water. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a very nice man, but there are some people that are in total are, to- are in this totally for themselves. I mean, that just struck mm-hmm. me as how selfless can you be, you know, but also right. like that recognition of, wow, like if, if I'm protecting myself, what is the impact to someone else or some other community? Yeah, yeah, and he's just using the, the the knowledge of living on the river. He knows that if he, you know, if he lays down sandbags here, that's just going to push the water into somebody else's farm. So he feels the responsibility to take on his share of the water. But that's kind of like the whole river story in general, right? Mm-hmm. That like, wh- and that's what you wrote about Tristan, right? Right. What you're doing here impacts us. 
Right. Right. And, and this whole kind of being connected from top mm-hmm. to bottom, whether it be water or sediment, you know, this this very nice fellows talking about, you know, somebody else getting the water. Well, we need the sediment, mm-hmm. too. Right. So it's a story about that connection. Okay. Right. Yeah. And it's it's not you know, we're not really taking a big holistic view of the river. It's kind of we have localized concerns. And, you know, I, I also highlighted in the story uh, the Sny uh the Snai Levy district, and you know they've made this controversial decision to sort of illegally uh, raise their levy beyond the height that the Army Corps allows, and that's been great for the Snai district. You know they haven't had flooding, but um, the areas that are you know just south of there, their flooding is increasing. Uh, the city of Hannibal, which is or the town of Hannibal, which is uh, Mark Twain's hometown. They're considering building bigger flood walls because their flooding is increasing as the Sny District's flooding is decreasing because they have these super high levees. Well, and you talk about kind of the the impacts there, but there's also been significant impacts to wildlife um, as a result of kind of how we've been managing the river. I mean, you have a whole section that focuses on that. Can you tell us really quickly about some of those impacts? Yeah, well, I highlighted in the story a section, uh, kind of a, a wildlife preserve in between Wisconsin and Minnesota, where you know they've really studied the impact of of a, a dam that's that's in that area. And over time, since that dam has been built, the kind of in river habitat, you know, the marshy lowland areas have have started to disappear as the water levels have gone up, and um, it's kind of created a, a new ecosystem where, you know, the, basically the landscape is sort of disappearing, kind of like here in Louisiana. And uh, they've been just kind of inventing new ways to restore that, to build new islands, to put in, you know, pieces of, of wood and, and roots to kind of try to bring back what, what they've lost over the last, you know, 70 years. So Tristan, um, we we are up against another break, and we're going to have to let you go. But tell us where you can find these articles, and remind everybody your Twitter handle and everything will remain the same. Yep, yeah, my Twitter handle will be the same, Tristan Bowrick at uh, on Twitter. Um, you can find all the stories on NOLA.com. Um, I think if you just search "Rivers Revenge," something like that, um, it's a six part series and. I think the first part of the series has links for the entire series. So it's good to start with that one. Well, Tristan, thank you so much. I mean, one, for this uh, really in-depth and compelling uh, reporting, but also for taking time to be with us. You know, we wish you the best and we're glad you're not going too far. We'll continue to follow you and look for more great reporting from you and the entire team um, at the Coastal Desk. Um, I guess we have to ask you one quick question, a fun question. Okay, wait, I have, a, okay. I have something I want to say to Tristan, too. We tease a lot of people about being avid listeners on our show, um, but I want you to know that that you have so many avid readers, and so it is very important that you continue telling this story for us. So oh, I appreciate it. I don't mean Thank to get you. serious before the, before the fun <laughs> question, but I wanted to let you know how important that your work and Sarah's work and Mark's work is to to what we do here thank you the advocate's very lucky to have you all um and so i will just end with a fun question what is your favorite thing about the mississippi river 
Favorite thing about the Mississippi River? Oh, that's Not a good question. across it. That's for one thing. <laughs> no, no, I would never swim across it, uh, <laughs> especially down here. Um, God, I don't know. I'm I'm fascinated with the the bizarre fish in the Mississippi. Yeah. The the gar and the giant uh, catfish are are just fascinating to me. They're like deep sea creatures. Maybe you need to get your friends to sink some alligators into the Mississippi River and see what they find. (laughs) That's a good idea. I'll mention that. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Tristan. Um, We appreciate your being on with us and we look forward to hearing more um, with you. Please check out The River's Revenge on NOLA.com from Tristan Bark. And we'll be right back talking about an organization that helps support this reporting after the break. You're listening to Delta Dispatches. And we're back. You're listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund. And I'm Simone Malaz with Restore or Retreat. What a fascinating conversation. I love Tristan and the stories that he and Sarah have told and then the reporting that Mark does. It's just, it's great. I think our dirtiest secret of our 99 episodes is that this is really just for us to learn from people like Tristan. (laughs) It's really a platform for the smart people to talk about what they do. And And us to ask some questions. Exactly. (laughs) Well, speaking of that, I'm so excited to welcome our next guest um, who's with an organization that has supported uh, the reporting that Tristan and many other journalists do. He actually mentioned them uh, in his interview, but Melissa Milkreist, Associate Director with Institute for Journalism and Natural Resources. Welcome to Delta Dispatches, Melissa. Hey guys, thanks for having me. So you are joining us from a much more pleasant um, Montana <laughs> setting. Um, we're in the sweltering heat of Louisiana. Is, uh, you, are, are you based we, there? Yeah, we had a heat warning this weekend, yeah. Melissa, which means that it's so hot that they actually have to tell you it's too hot down here. How are you doing over there in Montana? We're good. We just had a, a winter storm warning over the weekend, but um, luckily we didn't get any snow down here in the valley. So um yeah, I'm based here in Missoula, and um, it's a little more temperate here than it is down there right now. <laughs> <laughs> we might have to do a little uh, trip to find that, find yes, that out ourselves. Field trip. Yeah, um, come on up anytime. <laughs> so, Melissa, tell us a little bit about your background. You're Associate Director with the Institute for Na- uh, Journalism and Natural Resources, but you um, have a journalism background, is that correct? Um, sort of. Um, I actually have a couple of degrees in environmental studies and creative writing. Um, and then I've done quite a bit of freelancing over the years, but I actually never went to journalism school, which is I'm masquerading as a journalist now. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, um, we definitely need writers and those who can kind of tell the stories and support journalists and particularly on the environment. So tell us a little bit about the Institute for Journalism, Natural Resources and, and the work you all do. Sure. Yeah. Um, so we call it IJNR since that's a lot shorter than saying Institute for Journalism and Natural Resources over and over. Um and we are a nonpartisan nonprofit uh, with the goal of promoting public dialogue about natural resource issues through better journalism. Um, and when I say better journalism, I mean by bringing competitively selective journalists on these week-long trips into the field so they can learn firsthand about the natural resource issues that they cover and the people that are most invested in them. 
We had the pleasure of hosting folks from your Lower Mississippi River Institute recently here in New Orleans. I sadly mm-hmm. was not there. Can you say like lower but better? <laughs> like, can we say yeah. that lower yeah, but we better, Mississippi? <laughs> actually, I'm connected to both sections, but yeah, no, we know which sections are better. <laughs> but um, but Simone actually presented yeah. to the group um, yes. when they did a, a day of was, coastal flyover. I was also in their ears during the entire flyover, yeah, um, right. and we got to narrate the tour for them. So Melissa, mm-hmm. yeah, um, I was I was there actually. Yeah. So um, are you, where would be the best? Is that fair to say? Or no, I'm just kidding. Um, yep. Did you had you been here before, and what did you learn um, from coming to Lower Mississippi? Um, I had not been to um, the region before, and I certainly learned a lot about um, the different collaborative efforts that are going on there. Certainly, that panel discussion that morning was really informative, um, and hearing how. There's a lot of different sectors coming together, whether it's, you know, public health and, and community engagement or, you know, sort of from the engineering side or from the, the conservation and wildlife side and the economics and, um, you know, the the businesses that are dependent on the coast there, how all of those communities are working together um, to sort of raise awareness and figure out um, best practices along the coast. So um, it was a pretty fascinating morning session there for sure. So tell us, um, so Tristan kind of connected, he, he is in the lower Mississippi, but he wrote about the upper Mississippi. So tell us how y'all supported a series like uh, Tristan's reporting. Yeah, so what we do um, is we put together these week-long reporting trips um, in various places throughout North America. Um, we've been around for 25 years, so we've we've hit a lot of different areas. Um, and so journalists apply for these fellowships. They don't have to pay anything to come on our programs. Um, and so they show up and we throw them on a bus and we spend the next week sort of driving around either a specific region or a watershed, which was sort of the case of the, um, upper and lower Mississippi trips that we did. Um, and we give them an opportunity to step away from their desks, um, get out in the field, get a chance to, you know, see and smell and touch and hear all the things that they're reporting about and and most importantly um get give them a chance to meet with the people that are you know really the stakeholders with a lot of these issues whether that's scientists who have been doing research on these issues for a long time or farmers or fishermen or tribal representatives or community activists um sort of letting them hear all the different sides of various issues so then in turn, they can go back and report on them um, more thoroughly um, and from a more informed place. And it's not just print, right? You're talking about not all forms. Right. Right. Yeah. So we do get a lot of um, public radio reporters. Um, we get some folks who are doing online only. Um, so it's a pretty, pretty broad um, range of folks that we get on these trips. Melissa, why is um, reporting on the environment um, or natural resources, you know, particularly at the local level, so important um, in this day and age? Um, my gosh, I think environment reporting has always been important. I mean, we're sort of we're running up against a lot of these 50th anniversaries right now in the environmental world with the you know Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act, and I think a lot of those you can draw a pretty direct line um, between the public awareness that was raised by environmental reporting on a lot of important issues like the Cuyahoga River fires or, you know, oil spills off the California coast um, and straight to the the legislation that passed there. So I think environment reporting has always been pretty imperative, but um, 
now I think we're at sort of a critical juncture um, where, you know, climate change is causing all kinds of changes, whether, whether it's um, coastland or inland flooding or um, prolonged wildfires or fire seasons in the West. Um, and at the same time, I think politics has really gotten involved in the environmental arena, too. And I think a lot of politicians have become really adept at um, making environmental issues a wedge between voters. So I think now more than ever, which is such a cliche, but I do think it's true now more than ever, um, having good journalism that's, you know, fact-based, evidence-supported reporting um, is pretty critical to having an informed public um, that can, you know, then go out and vote or, you know, make their voices heard based on, you know, what they're learning from good journalism. So, Melissa, where can journalists find more information about IJNR? Do y'all post upcoming trips? Like, what if I'm interested Mm -hmm. in a particular area? Tell us about the the process, maybe a little bit. Sure, yeah. So, journalists can go to our website, which is IJNR.org. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, um, and you can get on our mailing list if you're interested in being notified when we've got programs coming up. Um, and so the, our institutes, which are what we call these longer programs, the week-long programs, that's an application process. So journalists have to apply and then they're selected. Um, we also do shorter workshops, uh, so two or three days. And those are just sort of a first-come, first-serve registration process. So journalists can keep an eye out for those too. Um, and then we also do reporting grants. So journalists can apply for funding to go out and do some, you know, individual reporting on a project that they may not otherwise have the opportunity to get out in the field and, and get after. So, so tell us the website once again. It's ijnr.org. Org. Well, thank you, Melissa. Thank you for supporting this important work too, especially, you know, on the local level and in places like here in Louisiana, where it does make a difference every day um, when we talk about the coast and the environment. So thank you for doing that. Yeah. Well, thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, anytime IJNR wants to come back to Louisiana, yeah, are we, we'd are we love radio to journalists? Where yeah. can we go? Or, yeah, maybe <laughs> exactly. Jacques and I apply for somewhere. We can share. Clearly, we need some yes. help. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Well, we are, yep. We are hoping to be uh, down on the Gulf Coast within the next year or two. Oh, you so should. We'll stay in touch. We'd love yeah. to provide more opportunities for journalists. So thank you so all much, right. Melissa, and to all the folks at IJNR for your work. And that wraps our 99th episode. Now we need to go party like it's 1999. <laughs> Is that how that works? And then we'll be back for the big 100. Thank you for listening to Delta Dispatches. Go catch up on iTunes, Google Play, and now Spotify at deltadispatches.org.